welcome to Rhetoric O-Rama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. That's Dave. And that's Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. And welcome back to Rhetoric O-Rama. In this episode, we'll be discussing the wonderful world of rhetoric. Today's topic is the power and the mystery of the rhetorical canons. But first, let's hear some untranslated Greek or Latin. Ophere, trucidare, rapere, falsus nominibus imperium, utque ubi solitudinem faciunt pacem appellant. All right, Tim, so the question before us today is what are the rhetorical canons? Now, I've heard a dirty rumor around the uh, water cooler that you call them the offices. That's true. Why do you call them the offices? That's how Aristotle called them, and he had only three. He had invention, arrangement, and style. Based on what I've learned from the Ciceronian tradition is that there were five, memory, arrangement, invention, delivery, and style. And I remember them that way because of the acronym MAIDS. That's pretty good. I remember them by the mnemonic device YASDEM, invention, arrangement, style, delivery, and memory. That's absolutely ridiculous, right? I guess we could say it's tomato, tomato, but I don't think they had tomatoes in. uh, That's true. Until Columbus or Cortez the killer brought them. Who's Cortez the killer? He's the guy who uh, I think he's the one who who beat Montezuma at uh, in uh, Mexico City. Is that like in the 80s? Was it a fist fight (laughs) or something like that? All right. So, yeah, I don't think that's actually tomato, tomato are, are different definitions or conceptualizations. It's more like corn and maize. Tim, what is invention? Invention is the way you find or create your arguments. Okay, and I've also learned that uh, it's not only just your arguments, but the components of the argument. So what's your point, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's claims of value, policy, uh, definition, and those, and also the construction of your actual arguments, the material that you use to support those, that's part of that invention process. Including even things like evidence or citing authority. Mm-hmm. So. Your invention is what you bring together to make your point. And so why do they call it invention? Like, how's that translated? Um, I think it's probably kind of like finding. What's the next one? Arrangement. Arrangement. So in the, in the classical sense, what we're starting this and talking this about, uh, there's the arrangement of speeches. And how were most speeches then as now organized, Tim? There's a thing called the classical oration that has about six different parts. Uh, but I think in terms of the modern approach, which is tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Why would you say that so much in a speech? Uh, because your audience does not have access to the text. So if they lose the point, they can't go back up to the top of your speech. So you have to give them a preview. You have to have more signposting. And you have to remind them of where you've been and where you're going. And they weren't distracted by their cell phones, right? Absolutely not. Right. No, it's not funny. <laughs> There's uh, uh, many ways to organize a speech, the introduction, body, conclusion, but there's also the classical oration, and we're going to have a wonderful series on that coming up soon. But just to give you a little highlight, there is the introduction, the narrative, right? Mm-hmm. So you give some background facts. The uh, division, which is the section that would say your, what your argument is, what your thesis is, your proof, the support of that, the rebuttal, where you uh, offer responses to challenges to your argument, and the conclusion. But there's also arrangement in the sense of persuasive speeches, mm-hmm. right? There's Alan Monroe, everybody's favorite, right? He had a persuasive strategy for making persuasive speeches. Next is, is delivery. 
delivery. What do you got for delivery? Well, you have to take into consideration the fact that your audience needs to be able to hear you. So you need to have enough projection so you can be heard. You need to talk at a pace where they can follow what you're saying. You don't want to go too slow and bore the hell out of them. Um, you probably need to use your body, use uh, hand gestures and things like uh, eye contact. Those would all be parts of delivery. Mm -hmm. You know, I read a book on the delivery styles of presidents. It's a real page turner. Nobody really, that book's not flying off the shelf at <laughs> Barnes & Noble. But it talked about uh, Abe Lincoln, and it turns out that Abe Lincoln's speaking voice, how, how, what would you think it would be? I think it would be very deep. It's actually high and shrill. Wow. And so it made sense because they had no microphones back then. So his loud kind of high-pitched voice actually made his voice carry further in the, in the audience so people could hear him. How about that? That is fascinating. Yeah. There's delivery. Uh, I asked my students this question, Tim, and I'm curious what you think. Can a strong delivery compensate for weak content in a speech? I don't know if it can fully compensate for it, but it can certainly, uh, you, you know, they say you can't put lipstick on a pig. Well, it turns out if you did. You know, I'm from, Ar I'm, I'm from Arkansas. You can. It just takes three strong men. <laughs> so not 100%, but it could. Now, that, let me ask the opposite. Can a weak delivery destroy or impair, to some degree, strong content? Absolutely, because a really weak delivery could cause the audience to not hear what was being said or to not believe what was being said because some things about the deliverer made the audience suspect that this was not true or these were not authentic statements. Mm, giveaways, right? Like yeah. poker. So what is style, Tim? Well, style, uh, the ancients talked li largely in terms of levels. So there was high, medium, or low style. Uh, sometimes they use the terms uh, Asiatic, Attic, and Rhodian. Mm. So the idea I is... I had some of those in my house <laughs> once. I got some traps and got you, rid of them. You got a ter as exterminator. Yeah. So, so the idea is, given the occasion, you would uh, use sort of you know grandiose phrases and a sophisticated vocabulary, or you would get kind of down home and funky and just be talking straight to the people like you were one of them. You know, I was pulled over as a high school student uh, by a police officer and I got pulled over, and the officer said, do you know why I pulled you over? And he said, and I remember to this day, he goes, you failed to obey that traffic control device. And I thought, what is a traffic control device? And it was a, it's a stop sign, right? <laughs> and so that kind of high style, mm. that at least I thought it was high style at the time, seemed a little grandiose to kind of reinforce his authority or something like that. Sounds like a clever ploy on his part. Um, but anyway, so style, high, low, medium, I've also heard style. We talk about those in terms of the rhetorical devices, mm -hmm. right? Tropes, figures. Right. Uh, we have our segment, the uh, bonus content. Sometimes we offer those rhetorical devices. And those can be organized according to logos, ethos, pathos, logical appeals, emotional appeals, ethical appeals. So there's various ways to organize style. There are Let's many see. ways. Many ways to do it. All right. So we've talked about invention. We've talked about arrangement. We've talked about delivery. We've talked about style. What's up next? Memory. I knew you'd remember. <laughs> so memory was very important to the ancients because they're still in a primarily oral culture. Mm -hmm. So they did not rely upon a written script, but they memorized their entire script. Now, ever since the invention of writing, memory is not so important to the speaker, but I think it's really important to the audience. So basically, memory now refers to making your content memorable. And as a famous lawyer once said, 
if the gloves does not fit, you must acquit. Do you think it's relevant today? It is relevant in that your audience needs to remember what you said at the beginning of the speech by the time you're into the middle and towards the end, and the audience needs to leave your speech memorizing a few key things. And again, that's why we have that, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting because we're talking about rhetoric so far in a very classical sense where it's just speeches, but rhetoric can be almost anything, right? Absolutely. Movie posters, mm -hmm. advertisements for tacos. Absolutely. Right? Fishing shows. Mm-hmm. Bowling signs. Absolutely. Anything. So one of the things that contemporary scholars do is they look at public memory, mm. right? So it kind of falls within this category of, of memory in the traditional sense. And one of the examples uh, they talk about, this is from an article from Dickinson Ott and Aoki from 2005 in the Western Journal of Communication. Uh, the article is Memory and Myth at the Buffalo Bill Museum. Have you ever been? I have not. Have I, you? I have been there. I went there. Uh, it was all right. So these three uh, fine young scholars uh, took a rhetorical aspect look at this museum and through the lens of memory, and they came up with three strategies or three ways to look at rhetoric in terms of these museums. And one was collecting, and that's, you know, what artifacts, uh, the curators and the archaeologists and all these people, what they uncover, what they find, what they locate, what they bring back to the museum. And so that's a lot like the invention process, right? So I guess in this, at least how I'm explaining here, invention falls under memory. Mm -hmm. There's also uh, another way that this rhetorical practice of museums is, is done is by the placement of artifacts. Okay. So you walk into a museum, you might see something right away, right? The introduction, it might okay. have more presence. Perlman Ulbrecht's Titeca. Oh, I love you, those guys. Yeah, the, the new rhetoric. Uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a future episode. They talk about what's, what's displayed most, most prominently is what sticks in the, the audience's mind. So what you see right as you walk into the museum is going to have more of an impact than what's at the end. So there's the uh, uh, example of exhibiting. And I came across this scholarship when I wrote a paper about the Supreme Court Museum. Wow, you've been there too. And yeah, and uh, I'm big. they know me. <laughs> uh, I went there about 10 years ago, and that was right when the Supreme Court locked the front doors, right? There's this huge building. And there's two big giant doors that you would walk through if you were going to go argue a case. You walk through the little foyer, and then you walk into this giant courtroom. But citing uh, security reasons, they decided to lock those doors, and everybody had to enter through little the side door. And so everyone who went into the Supreme Court, the advocates and things like that, had to walk through the museum. Oh. And what do you think they saw when they walked through the museum? Let's say you're arguing for a client who is trying to you know, make some appeal and challenge the U.S. government. You walk into the museum, and what do you think the museum is telling you? You can't challenge the government. <laughs> how great the government is and how this great part of it is so strong and upheld its, you know, uh, what's, what's in the Constitution. So it can be a little intimidating, right? I'll bet. In terms of that. Uh, here, so when I went there about 10 years ago, uh, there were some statues of the uh, 1963 Warren Co Court, Earl Warren's Court, and you know where they were? Where? Right next to the bathroom. <laughs> right? Not necessarily the most respectable arrangement. Sure, they had to put it somewhere. And at the same time when I went there, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman of the Supreme Court, they had her robe and the chair she sat in, 
it was on the back side of another display where it was not prominently displayed. Oh, that's dirty. That's bad, right? And so it's not very prominently placed. So we talked about collecting, we talked about exhibiting, and that's kind of an arrangement thing, right? It is. So now I'm talking about putting arrangement under memory, at least in how we're presenting this right here. The last category is through uh, representation. And so what that means is that memory is affected by the rotation of displays. You go to the same museum, they may change displays. Hopefully they've moved Sandra Day O'Connor's display. And they can do that at certain times to reflect certain things. So for example, uh, if there's a museum about the 4th of July, mm -hmm. they might focus on, uh, uh, or I should say the Liberty Bell, they might focus on uh, uh, the 4th of July right around that time and so forth like that. What I'm trying to say here is the that could be style, mm -hmm. right? How it's presented or delivery. Wow, yeah. Right? So uh, even though memory might be something of how to remember speeches, it can be so much more, I guess, is the, is the take. So you got memory spread throughout the discourse. It's like a peanut butter sandwich mm -hmm. with so much peanut butter, <laughs> it's just delicious, right? All right, so did we hit them all? I think we did. We hit them all. What's your take-home point, Tim? My take-home point. Um, my take-home point is that while Cicero arranges them so memory comes fourth and delivery comes fifth, that's because he needed to memorize his content before he delivered it. I arrange them with delivery coming fourth and memory becoming fifth because in my mind, memory is really about the memorability for the audience. My take-home point is that uh, there are strengths and weaknesses of any method. So there are these five rhetorical devices and they give us a guide to examine rhetoric and also the construction of rhetoric. So that gives us a nice point. If you're new to the world of rhetoric, it can give you a way to approach rhetoric and think about it, but it's also limiting like any method because it's gonna focus our attention on those five things and not focus us on other things that could be there. That's a really smart analysis, Dave. I know. And so you know what this comes? What? Here comes the challenge for Tim McGee. All right. If you were to add a sixth office, notice I'm using your language because I'm putting you on the spot, what would you add? I would add visibility. What is visibility? Because most ancient orators were seen by the audience. Uh -huh. And then we had a period where there's a lot of orators were only heard by the audience. Mm -hmm. But increasingly, audiences are also seeing the orator they hear. So I think we need to get into full body gestures. Full body gestures like kicking the podium? Absolutely. I love it. Pounding the podium. You know, I would say uh, the limiting point for the rhetorical canons is it focuses solely on the actual speech and not about the speaker who's involved. And if you remember from our first episode, my definition of rhetoric was an asymmetrical communicative encounter with the other, which highlights the individuals involved in this process. And I think you kind of see the same thing. Indeed. Wow, that's, Indeed. That's beautiful. Now, I've got a challenge for you. Uh-oh. If it were to remove one of the five from the list of maids, which one would you throw away? I would say the one I would get rid of is none. <laughs> I'm dodging the question. All right. I'm dodging the question because they are and important. And you know what? There is probably a rhetorical device with a Greek or Latin name for that action. I just don't happen to know what it is. Actually, I do know what it is. What's it called? It's called Don't Answer the Question. <laughs> All right. Now it's time for the bonus content. Will it be a fallacy, a historical anecdote, or rhetorical device? Let's have Dr. Tim spin the wheel. All right, Dave, do you want to spin the wheel? You know, I don't have much experience spinning the wheel. I know you do, so why don't you do it? 
All right, here it goes. Oh, goody, a rhetorical device. Yay! All right, Tim, so the British woman we hired to give our voiceover says it's a rhetorical device. What do you got for us today? Today, it's correctio, the amending of a term or phrase just employed, redefinition. So how about this for an example? I went outside today, and my neighbor was mowing their lawn, I mean their trash heap, while I was trying to go to work. That's, that- a, that's a good one. I like it. Do you have one? Um, well, actually, Cicero had one where he is uh, talking to uh, someone that he is, uh, uh, has a case against, and he says that he saw him out with his wife. I mean your sister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cold. That's cold. <laughs> now we know why he was probably murdered. Yeah. Right? Do we have any other examples of Correctio? Uh, well, we do. It turns out in episode one, I had mentioned that Petrus Ramus was pre-Renaissance, when in fact he was at the heart of the Renaissance, living from 1515 to 1572. In checking out his dates, I was glad to learn that the man who tried to reduce rhetoric to mere elocution came to a bad end, as he was one of the people killed in the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Uh, I also have a correctio. I said that Cicero said you should not enumerate your points in case you forget them, but what he really said was have enough points to make your argument, but don't have so many that you forget them. So he suggested that, I would say. Um, So that, you know, it's uh, quite a coincidence that that was the rhetorical device. That's the way the wheel works. Okay, before we go get some cheeseburgers, let's take care of some business. Like all podcasts, Rhetorico-Rama is sponsored, and today's sponsor is... Today's episode is brought to you by Burton Lanham & Quinn's Warehouse of Rhetorical Devices, storing tropes and figures in climate-controlled secure locations since 1992. At BL&Q, we take great pride in helping you find the precise device to suit your discursive needs. Anything from abscissio to zugma, arranged alphabetically, by language, limited to Latin, Greek, and English only, by rhetorical strategy, by audience, by appeal, and by well-known authority. If you need just the right figure to confuse or abuse your opposition, come on down to Burton, Lanham, and Quinn. Find figures, we got them. Figures of abuse available only to 18 and over. I'm Dave Dewberry, and that's Tim, as seen on TV McGee, professors of communication at Ryder University. And this has been Rhetoric-O-Rama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. We'd like to thank our British voiceover artist, and we'd like to thank our musical director, Tom Santiago. Rhetoric Rama is recorded at Costa de Pado Studios. If you have any questions or are looking for more information, you can contact us via our website, rhetoric.fun, or consult your local library. Now let's get some cheeseburgers.